These are the words from uh, Paul to the Ephesians. Then we will no longer be tossed about as infants on the waves, are blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and the craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ, from whom the body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And then some years later, these are the words from Jesus through John to the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These are the words of the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate evil people and have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them to be false. You have endured suffering and persevered for my name and have not grown weary. Yet this I hold against you. You have forsaken your first love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. A couple weeks ago, we went on a trip from here to Galilee. Last week, you went on a trip to Troyville. And today we're back looking at Ephesus. What I want to tell you about Ephesus is, first of all, 50% of the New Testament was either written from Ephesus to other places by Paul or written to Ephesus by Paul because the letters to Timothy are addressed to Timothy, obviously, who lived according to tradition in Ephesus. Paul spent three years of his ministry, his missionary journeys, in Ephesus. It was perhaps the most significant city in the ancient world, rivaled only by Rome and Alexandria. And Fred, if you'll show the first shot, this is an overview from a mountain above Ephesus. And you can see kind of how the main streets come together here. Uh, Ephesus had two ways to get there. One was by land, and it's off to the right. You can see a round semicircle. That's the theater, which we'll see in a minute. And the land entrance was that way. And then if you follow this road all the way off the screen uh, going to our west, that road would take you to the harbor. And it was the largest harbor in the ancient world. Scholars estimate that at least a half a million people lived in Ephesus in its heyday, probably more significant than Rome or Alexandria to the ancient world. It was in its day like New York City. In our day, a large place with many diverse cultures, and if you could make it there, you could make it anywhere. And people came by land and by sea. Fred, we'll show the next one. Uh, one of the things that you would see, the tourists see, uh, most of them don't get on that mountain and get the overview, so when they're on the ground level, this is the, one of the first things they see. It's a colonnaded street. The colonnaded street that we're on here functioned as the Wall Street of its day. You could go and invest in certain entrepreneurial efforts that were going to leave from Ephesus and go to other parts of the ancient world. Uh, Ephesus was the economic center, really, of the world. 
many scholars believe that the very first bank to pay you interest on your money that you deposited was the bank at the temple of Artemis because Artemis was the chief god or goddess of Ephesus. A million and a half people annually made a pilgrimage there to worship Artemis. So apparently the Artemis temple, you could leave your money if you were going someplace else. And they said, when you come back, we'll give you this money plus more. And often you got a free gift. Uh, beside, they, they were the, the first major bank scholars, believe, of, of their day. But one thing you need to know, you didn't enter Wall Street. You didn't enter the Agora or the marketplace unless you first offered incense to Artemis as the god of the city and goddess of city, and you pledged your complete allegiance to her in the days of Paul. In the days of Revelation later, you will have to offer incense to Caesar before you can get into Wall Street or to the marketplace. Fred, the next one. This is the famous shot, uh, our, our shot of the famous Library of Celsus, probably the second largest library of its day, so that mo- much of the culture and the learning of the day was held here at Ephesus. There are two things you can't see in this picture. One is slightly to the right. There is connected to uh, the Ephesus Library is a, is a um, an arch, which is a gateway to the rest of the city. And over the arch are inscriptions, and one of them reading from uh, Paul's day probably, but we know certainly in John's day, is an inscription to Caesar as the dominator and the Lord of Lords. And by then, you either offer incense to Caesar or you die. It's not a matter of whether you can shop or do business anymore. Across the street, and not in this shot, was one of the largest brothels of Asia. Interestingly, that you could have some one-stop shopping. You could get your education, and apparently your education did not give you morals. And then you crossed uh, the street. Next shot, Fred. This is the theater. Now, most archaeologists believe that that crane in the right-hand corner was probably not there in Paul or John's day. But you may remember the scene in Acts when probably 15,000 people rush into the theater because the Christians are ruining their business. Their business is they sell little statues of Artemis. And if people follow Jesus, they will quit buying these statues. And so they uh, drag religious um, uh, leaders into the theater, and a near riot ensues. But you'll remember that Paul escapes unharmed. But the theater reminds us that, it, that Ephesus was a cultural center for its day. Now, I don't have the next slide because we didn't go there. But when we were up on top of that mountain walking down, we saw buses going up another way. And we asked where those buses were going, and our leader said, they're going to the traditional site where Mary lived, Mary, the mother of Jesus, who became the adoptive mother of John at the cross. Tradition is that she lived up in Ephesus. And so it's likely that the disciples from time to time, the Christians who were there in Ephesus, gathered at Mary's house. But they didn't stay there very long, because the next shot, and the last shot is the one I really want you to see, Fred. Well, this is something that the tourists on their buses just zip right by because it's pretty much in ruins. It's formerly a three-part gate, the city gate of Ephesus. It's uh, in shambles now, but you need to know that very significant things took place at the city gate. The first one was this. Um, the background is one out of every two people who lived in the Roman world was a slave. And if you were a slave, the odds are that every single one of you 
had been either bought or sold at some point in your life in the slave market at the city gates of Ephesus. Nearly all the world's slaves passed through here and were auctioned off as property. One out of every two. Now, where did the slaves come from? Well, probably a number of sources. They're probably children born to slaves. They may have been captured. Oftentimes, captives became slaves if they had useful skills and they were not rebellious. Criminals were never made slaves. You couldn't trust them around the house and you couldn't trust particularly rebellious people. But the main source of slaves were babies. And at the city gate of Ephesus, there was for lack of a better word, friends, a baby dump. This is where, according to scholars, 200 to 500 babies were dropped off a day to die. Why were these babies abandoned here? Because often in the the Roman world, the father decided whether a child born to the mother would live or not. And if she was a daughter, he might not want to keep her because it was more expensive to have a daughter when you factored in dowry and other things down the road. And so oftentimes daughters were brought to the city gate and just left to die of exposure. Others brought left to die were been children of temple prostitutes. Sometimes children of slaves were brought to die. Now occasionally there were people who would come through all the babies and look for a few that they could bring home as slaves. They were carted away in cages. And by and large they were raised in cages. Let out. To learn whether it was housekeeping or cooking or other arts that they might need. And then return to the cage. Here's where the church came in. You need to know two things. Number one, according to tradition, the church began to pool their money to go down to the city gate to the slave market and buy freedom for as many slaves as they could afford. It was also known that the church would come and comb the baby piles just looking for any baby still alive that they could then legally adopt and raise them as their own and in that way purchase their freedom. This is what the early church in Ephesus was about. And so when Paul writes and says, you're no longer like infants tossed here and there, blown by the wind and tossed by the waves, they knew what he was talking about. Paul didn't have to write them and say, now go and free the children and the slaves because they were already doing it. But he used this as sort of a jumping off point to say, now it's not enough to rescue a baby or to be a baby yourself, but you've got to grow up. And he encouraged them to grow up to be like Jesus. That was the mission of the church in Ephesus. It's a mission for the church in Alamo Heights today. And one of the things we're going to be talking about in the months ahead is that I'm going to be inviting you to several opportunities where you can begin to grow up in Christ, where you can begin to be more solid in your walk so that the winds of ill health or poor economy or criticism from others no longer toss you about, but you can remain anchored. And that will come after Easter, and we'll talk more about that. But I also need to remind you of something else. Years later, after Paul, in his latter years, John wrote a letter on behalf of Jesus. Jesus communicated through John. And in this letter, he said, you've done a lot of good things, Ephesus, but this I have against you. You have forgotten your first love. Now, scholars debate as to what that first love might be. But they're pretty sure it would certainly include love for Jesus. 
love for each other, and love for people in need. Maybe it had gotten harder to adopt the babies. Maybe it had gotten more difficult to worship because of the threat of death. Maybe they no longer had the funds or were willing to part with the funds to buy freedom for the slaves. Hard to know exactly. All we hear is the stirring warning, you have forgotten your first love. I say this to you because I want you to think about this. What was the first love of Alamo Heights Methodist Church back in 1910? Anybody know what the first love of Alamo Heights was? The first love was children. And like the early church at Ephesus, they were concerned about children who were at risk. Children at risk of not hearing the gospel. And so they no longer required children to, to take the trolley and go downtown where the churches were. But they came out to the end of the trolley line in Alamo Heights and they established places where they could hear the gospel. And they established mission efforts to begin to help other children who not only perhaps had not heard the gospel, but they didn't have food or appropriate education. Back in 1910, it was clear that on behalf of God, our first love, like one of the first loves of Ephesus, were the children in need. I tell you that because it is time, 99 years later, to recover our first love. And you will see and hear about opportunities for us to be in ministry with children who are underserved, who are at risk, who are not exposed to the gospel. You will hear that. You will see that. And God willing, you'll participate in that as well. Because we must, we must never forget our first love. Just like back in Ephesus, the children at risk. It is time to recover that love.